0: You are listening to the Coming Up for Air podcast hosted by Air Moms Lori McDougall and Annie Highwater. This podcast is sponsored by AlliesInRecovery.net. Coming Up for Air brings together two wonderful people, both of whose adult sons are in recovery from opiate addiction. Annie Highwater and Lori McDougal have been through years of their loved one's active addiction. They have come to understand the direct link between taking care of yourself and being able to help your loved one. During these conversations, Lori and Annie address the questions and concerns brought up by allies and recovery members. And now, coming up for air with Lori McDougal and Annie Highwater.
1: Welcome back to this week's episode of Coming Up For Air. I am your host, Annie, author of Unhooked, with my co-host, Lori McDougall. Hello, Lori. Hi, Annie. How are you? Good. Um, today, we have a special guest I am super excited about. He hails from my own hometown. He is the chief deputy, which I just realized is a pretty big deal, for Franklin County, which is the Columbus and surrounding areas, Columbus, Ohio. Um, and he also works with the HOPE Task Force, which stands for Heroin Overdose prevention education. And I'm really particularly interested in this guest because we wanted to get law enforcement on here. And also there was kind of a big uh, blow up. It got viral attention where there was another sheriff's that had wanted to do a three strikes rule, three sh- strikes of Narcan, and you don't ever get it again. So having invited a deputy on who has a heart to not shame and to change the attitude of law enforcement is a big, huge deal for those of us who have been affected by addiction in our family and want to see a good outcome, no matter how long that takes. Um, so with that, I would like to welcome Chief Deputy of Franklin County, Rick Minard. So welcome to Coming Up for Air.
2: Thank you so much, Annie and Lori, for having me. Um, uh, I'm I'm delighted to be a guest here. A little bit about me as I currently serve, as you mentioned, uh, in an executive role at the Sheriff's Office. And so I'm the chief deputy over the investigations division. So, what does that mean?
0: Um,
2: I am over everything on the Detective Bureau side from homicide all the way down to theft, I have narcotics, vice. Um, any task force assignments that includes um, uh, drugs, terrorism, um, anything that uh, anything that, that that really comes down to uh, um, a covert um, uh, operations. And so um, I've been in law enforcement for about 26 years, all of my time here at the, at the uh, sheriff's office and worked right here in central Ohio. So I started out in our, in our correctional facilities, I worked there um, and then from there went out to patrol and into investigations where I've spent probably all oh, the better part of two thirds of my career in the investigations division. I've, uh, I've had a, a blessed career, got to do a lot of exciting things, undercover operations, on SWAT team for a while and all kinds of fun stuff. Um, I, uh, I am the father of four and so I have uh, two grown children, two daughters that are grown and I have two teenagers at home, a son and a daughter so uh, they keep me really busy as well. So that's a little bit about, about me and my background and so thanks for having me.
1: Wow, thank you for coming on. I didn't, I don't think I knew you had four kids. So you are definitely invested in the community. So, since you are in the executive role, are you out on the street? What does a typical day look like for you with the sheriff's office?
2: Well, um, so for many years, um, I was either boots on the ground or I was a first-line supervisor. And so, I spent um, a lot of time out um, doing field operations. And so, about four years ago, I got the opportunity to move into an executive role and. Which is where I'm at now, as far as a chief deputy. So it's not as as exciting, but I'll tell you what is an advantage is now I get to see the world uh, a little bit different, and I get to see um, how law enforcement and how they operate in the community from a different standpoint. You know, it's kind of I have a higher view on the tree, so to speak, now. So I get to see the landscape a little differently. You know, when you're on the when you're on the ground, you think you know what the forest looks like until you get way up high in the tree, and then you look out and the forest looks much different from way up high. So. You yeah, my, my job now is to uh, run operations from, you know, within an office, but also to connect with the community and, and try to set the vision and in the, in, in the direction for operations moving forward.
1: Well, I, I definitely see what you're saying. Um, that's the bigger bird's eye view. So, um, so basically, you know, what we talk about on this podcast is the the epidemic of addiction. I don't want to narrow that down to just heroin or opiates, although opiates seem to be what's mostly out of control and getting attention, especially in the media. Um, but we are affected family members or what we like to call the entourage, so to speak. For There's one, one in seven people are addicted. So there are six people typically that are affected, if not all the way up to 20. That's neighbors, coworkers, friends, and we are the, the affected entourage. So that said... What have you seen in the field or even from your bird's eye view when it comes to this epidemic of addiction that is sweeping every single community at this point? It's not rich or poor, educated, uneducated. It seems to hit every demographic. So you personally, what have you been seeing?
2: You know, several years ago when uh, when I was working narcotics is really uh, at the height of the, uh, the prescription epidemic and some of the overprescribing that took place here in the United States. And so, um, Arguably, some of that has led us into the you know catastrophic position that we're in now with regard to the way the rate in which people were overdosing, and so you know, that sort of graduated from prescription medication abuse, while it still exists, but it, it it you know we we tightened those regulations and then it transitioned into heroin, and then so that we've put a lot of effort into that, and now it's, it's sort of the trend is it's trans it's transferring over into uh, more synthetic substances is what we're seeing a lot of now, and and so we're hearing a lot lot more. Um, about and seeing a lot more fentanyl um, on our streets. And so that presents a number of challenges Um, and even uh, methamphetamines is making a comeback we, uh, we're seeing it trafficked as well. And so when you're talking about Mexican cartels and things of that nature, these are educated folks. These are folks that do their own market research. And so they follow the trends and things of that nature. And so while there's efforts to curb addiction with some of the things like uh, Vivitrol and things of that nature, uh, what happens is, is dealers are pushing other substances. And as you mentioned to start this, this program off, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of attention gets put on opiates but addiction is much deeper than that. And so we're talking about lots of substances here. And so that's what we see as far as the trends on the street. And I like to characterize it. I don't know if you're a, a shooter or you're even a uh, uh, you know a football fan. Um, the end zone continues to move or the target is constantly moving. Um, and so it constantly presents challenges for us in law enforcement trying to get out in, in front of it. And then, of course, the overdose death rate continues to skyrocket with some of these synthetic drugs that we're seeing on the streets. are much more potent and much more deadly.
1: You know, that presents an interesting point that I hadn't even thought about, that when somebody is trying to step out of addiction or a community is trying to further that cause, I hadn't even thought that those who are profiting... Might have a response to that, an offensive move or um, something to counter that. I hadn't even thought of that. So that's that's big information.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And some of those efforts took place even with uh, you know with prescription. Uh, drug abuse, and while the regulations tightened up, um, you know the cartels and people that were capitalizing on folks' addiction stepped right in with replacement. You, know, you had cartels that were focusing efforts on, uh, you know, methadone clinics and places like that where they knew that uh, addiction existed. And so, yeah, they they're they're not dummies. They uh, they definitely do their their market research and they target specific areas. So every time we find a solution or something that seems to make an impact on on changing you know, treat treating addiction and things of that nature, these same folks that are capitalizing on people's vulnerabilities are there to, to uh to take advantage of that.
3: Right. There's a um I don't know if you saw this scene and, and it was really eye opening to me. I don't know if you ever watched that show. And I was not a big a big fan because I felt it it made it kind of chic and hip to be uh, using drugs, but Breaking Bad, that show Breaking mm-hmm. Bad. And there's one scene, there's a scene in there where the young kid who's the star, I forget what his name is, Jesse. Jesse Pinkman. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. he goes to an... Alcoholics Anonymous. Or yes, an I a. remember a. that. That was kind right? of realistic, I thought. Yeah, it is realistic, but mm-hmm. it was one of those things that, oh my gosh, you know, it, it really helped me realize that, oh boy, they're not stupid. They're really not smart. I mean, they are smart. And then the other, the other thing. This isn't just happenstance. It's not
1: just that you fall into grandma's right. pill collection. There are people actually victimizing and exploiting yep. your need right. to, yes, I mean, that's a very real and scary thing to be aware of.
3: Right. And also when, when you're talking about all these different and new drugs, how difficult is it to go ahead and try and combat that when you don't even know what the person, you know, you, you think they're coming in on an opiate overdose and you treat them with things like Narcan and, but it, it, you don't know, you don't know what it is and what do you do? You know?
2: Yeah. More and more, we're seeing more polysubstance, substance. So, um, you know, most folks that are addicted are not just typically addicted to one substance anyway. Mm-hmm. But um, with fentanyl and some of the synthetic drugs that we're seeing on the streets that are that are mass produced in places like Mexico and even over in China, the shift in the United States dealers are using those substances to cut other drugs. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, our lab results are coming back um, with. You know, more and more of a different poly substance, a lot of analogs out there, and it's a challenge for law enforcement to stay ahead of that, because quite honestly, the laws are slow moving as well, and we saw a lot of this uh, several years back when uh, you know, a lot of the media gave a lot of attention to basalts, and so and basalts and K2 and things of that nature, and those are synthetic forms of other hallucinant drugs, so we're seeing the same thing now with, uh, with fentanyl and a lot of the, uh, the analogs that are being produced. Um, and sometimes just in in rogue labs in somebody's garage somewhere, where they're mix, mixing substances and, and uh, using it to cut other drugs.
3: Right, and we're finding here in in New England, they have been putting uh, fentanyl. They're finding it in cocaine and marijuana. And I'm I'm just totally dumbfounded. I can't fathom why. You know, like why would it? Why would a drug dealer want to kill his uh, his buyer. Maybe his they consumer. think it's
1: better product so that it will bring in more buyers and they're not necessarily thinking, well, the risk of killing one maybe is inconsequential when it comes to having a bigger market. Is that the motive?
2: Yeah. And I mean, you know, a kilo of cocaine comes in and, and historically in the past, um, and, and I'll use the term, they step on it or, or cut it with, with uh, baby formula or, or baking mm-hmm. uh, soda or something of that nature. And so, you know, you could take a kilo and spread that out into a number of smaller doses and make more money out of it. With fentanyl, you can spread it even thinner and use a much more potent uh, product as as a cutting agent and you can maximize your profits even more. So with, with the potency and then of course, you know, one of the challenges that we always face from a law enforcement standpoint is um, when we get a, a rash or a spike in overdoses in a particular community, you know, we want to put that information out to the community but we 've got to be very careful because when we do that sometimes, unfortunately, what it also does is it in, it invites people with with se- severe substance abuse to sort of chase that dragon and it almost brings them in because they want to know where that that great high is. They want to chase that fire and so sometimes the challenge to educate the public. Without, without also uh, making the situation worse.
1: Yeah. That's a big job, you guys. <laughs> it's a dilemma. It's and it's scary. Yes. And it's scary that a lot of people don't even believe cartel exists here. And, you know, I've definitely heard of experiences people have had just working around families that have family members in addiction. And sometimes that turns into, you know, prostitution and thieving and things like that. Cartel is very real in our communities. You know, even the, you know, well-to-do communities, it doesn't matter what community. We are invaded with crime and cartel. I don't think it's something to really be like terrified of, but definitely being aware that there, the danger and the threat is real. You know, Lori and I both have sons in recovery. My son had a football injury. He became addicted to painkillers, pain I think Percocet. He never really ventured into the heroin and he's going, he's five years into his recovery now. And I remember him telling both of us, he would, when he would hear that, it, that something was dangerous, he wouldn't have stopped doing it because it was a threat. His mindset was, I can handle it. And so, you're definitely right about that. My next question for you is, um, since you're actively involved and you do seem to have such a, not only a passion, but a compassion, do you have a personal story regarding addiction and recovery?
2: Well, I'll tell you, I uh, I don't have a personal story. I'll tell you, what changed with me was when I began to listen. From a law enforcement standpoint, it's it's tough because, you know, for I've been in this line of work for 26 years, and for 22 years of it, I was supposed to be the guy with the answer. So when you called the police or you had a complaint or whatever, I I was supposed to come out there and have an answer. And so what happens in the law enforcement community is we start to to do more talking than we do listening. And I think to some degree, that's probably what's got us into some of the problems that we see across the nation now. And so for me, about three or four years ago, I always had a passion. Um, I was a homicide detective and a homicide supervisor for about 10 years, and then I, I worked narcotics for several years, too. So my passion has always been death investigations and narcotics. And a few years back, while well, I could sit here and brag about all the accolades of our Drug Task Force efforts, they rank the, among the, the tops in, in, in the state of Ohio as far as taking uh, arresting people and taking uh, drugs off the streets and seizing assets. And we rank among some of the top task forces in the country as well. Um, I could brag all day about that. But what I started noticing around 2012 to 2015 is the alarming death rate, overdose death rate mm-hmm. in Ohio. And so for me, I just started to do a little bit more listening. And when you sit and talk to uh, people like yourselves and some of the some of the just amazing people that I've got to, to spend time with and meet. And, you know, we're, and I'm, I assume you're familiar with them. I know we, we talked about, and I'm mm-hmm. not sure I'm allowed to mention names, but you know, the Stewart family and, and their yes. are Tyler's light Wayne Campbell and, yep. and, and, and folks like that, Heidi Riggs, Marin Riggs. And yeah. that one, they're really Struck me because um, Heidi's daughter, Marin went to the same high school as my oldest daughter. And so while they weren't necessarily friends in high school, it really hit home that here's a young lady from, from my community who, who had it all. And unfortunately, addiction crept into their household and claimed her life. And so when mm-hmm. you start to listen to some of those stories... It started opening my mind, and then I started doing a little bit more uh, my own, a little bit more of my own source, sort of self education, learning the science behind addiction. Mm-hmm. So the more I, the more I listened, and the more I learned, the more open minded I became about about addiction and all the challenges and, and predisposition and all those kinds of things that, that go into um, how somebody becomes addicted. And so that's really what what changed for me was just listening. As opposed to talking.
1: You wouldn't see, typically you don't expect that from a seasoned homicide <laughs> detective. So that's pretty astounding because it's, it's hard to receive compassion, especially when someone hasn't experienced it. So you've, it's almost like you're called.
2: <laughs> you sit and listen to these, these folks, I, I, I anybody in my profession, I can't, I, I can't fathom how you couldn't sit with somebody like, like a Wayne Campbell or. Yeah rigs and listen to their stories. And again, um, those are people from my community. Those are people that I'm familiar with with that 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 area because that's where I live. And and so when you hear their stories and 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 just the devastation that it that's created in their family, you look at them and you and you look at your own family and they look very similar in your mm-hmm. Wow. And, and again, you just learn more about addiction and how it works. And, and again, it just started to open my mind and, and uh, started, t- started to change my mind. And I, I decided that, that uh, we need to do something differently and that, it, you know, that what we were doing and what we had been doing for a number of years, while it's important to take strong enforcement efforts, we needed to uh, sort of spread our wings and try something different, try a new approach. And so from that is where the idea from the, uh, the Hope Task Force was born, been up and running for a couple of years and uh, something we're very proud of.
3: Let me interrupt the show for just a moment. I'd like to remind listeners there's a wealth of information about topics related to substance use disorder on alliesandrecovery.net. Allies and Recovery is a private members-only site that connects families dealing with substance use. It also teaches strategies for both helping your loved one and self-care. That's alliesandrecovery.net. Now back to the topic
1: how did you become involved with that exactly?
2: You know, like I mentioned for several years, I ran a narcotics unit and drug task force efforts. I, uh, i tell you, uh, interestingly enough, um, around 2012, 2013, around that time, I, we had did, you mentioned it at the beginning of the show and some of the over, you know, like crime rates and prostitution, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. We did a, a prostitution sting. And I thought it was going to be a good idea f- as a team building sort of exercise to also address a complaint in the, in, uh, here in the Columbus area on the near west side. We were getting a lot of complaints from business owners there about streetwalker walker, uh, walking prostitution and, and things of that nature. So we, we put together a sting operation and we went out. Our focus was to try to arrest as many people as possible because that's how in law enforcement we've always measured our success in the past. Not necessarily the right way. But that's how we've done it in the past, and so we did that. I paid attention to the feedback from the community, and the community wasn't as receptive to our our, our efforts as I thought they were. They kind of they kind of beat us up a little bit, and, and some of the blogging and comments were, "What are you doing to change the course of their life?" and "How what are you doing to help them?" All that kind of stuff. So what we did was we reached out to some of the treatment. Um, providers here in Central Ohio and invited them to come out and let's try it again. This time what we decided to do is instead of taking these young ladies and arresting them and take them straight to, to, to jail, what we would do is we would bring the treatment um, options out to the street and make them sort of uh, social workers and all of them as second responders. And so what we thought we would do is we would connect these young ladies with services prior to them getting caught up in the red tape of the criminal justice system. When we did that, we saw some success working very closely with uh, the specialty court dockets and things of that nature. We worked with some of the organizations here in central Ohio, Amethyst and, and Southeast and all that. So fast forward to the heroin epidemic, we thought, you know what, it worked in the past let's try it again. So we reached out to the local Adam H board, asked them for their support and their endorsement and and, and their support financially. Um, and so we partnered with Adam H and Southeast Healthcare. And then we also, that's where I met the Stewarts and some mm-hmm. of the family support groups that are out there and even faith-based organizations. And so now what we do is uh, we go out as partners, with law enforcement and all these other other folks that are battling this epidemic with us, and we go out as a team, and we respond to fatal and non-fatal overdose situations. But we also respond even before an overdose has happened. If there's addiction happening in in a household, and someone contacts us or directs us uh, out to their that residence or that particular area, we go out. We try to make com- uh, contact with those people. From a law enforcement stand- standpoint, what we would really like to do is extract information to go after the high-level dealer. Mm-hmm capitalizing on the addiction but at the same time connect families with with resources that's everybody from the person who's who's addicted to as you mentioned the family you mentioned earlier one in seven there are six other people though though that are that are affected by that addiction and we're talking about grandparents that are raising grandkids they should yep. be they should be enjoying the twilight of their, 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 their years and instead, they're chasing two and three-year-olds around and changing diapers because their adult children are addicted. And so, what we try to do is link them up with services as well. And so, we go out as a team as opposed to law enforcement going out and trying to solve this thing solely through through arrest.
3: Can I um, just, I have a couple of questions about that. So out here we have something similar happening and our law enforcement are involved uh, and they're popping up in all these different towns and cities. And I'm just wondering if, if you have the same type of setup where they also are bringing, they're bringing like a minister or a chaplain along with them. And they're also... Including like social workers uh, to try and connect them and get them at least even if they won't go to treatment or even if families kind of shut down at first, just kind of get them connected even in a small way so that maybe in the future they'll take advantage of it. Are you? Do, is it the same? Is it?
2: Yes, absolutely, and and I'll tell you when we first put our program together. I asked our officers. I have a, a line around my office, and that and that I usually say, "Stay in your lane," and uh, and so I asked our, our our folks to stay in their lane. And what I mean by that is to be traffic cops for addiction. You, know, you can stand out on your local corner, and you can provide direction to people if they're going a place here or there. Or they're looking for a parking lot if they're downtown or whatever. But what I asked our people to do is be traffic cops for addiction, be able to recognize it, be familiar with where the resources are at to be able to guide people into where to get help. I wanted them to stay away from diagnosing. Leave that to the professionals, the folks that are out there with us as a team. Let them do what what they're the experts at doing and that is engaging people and when they're ready to seek treatment they'll do so. And so just be traffic cops for addiction, go out there, be able to recognize it and be able to link people up with services as you go. But as you mentioned, yes, yeah, social workers, I'll tell you a quick story. We put our program together. We partnered with uh, an organization here and i am they don't pay me to say this, but uh, Southeast Healthcare here in Central Ohio is an outstanding organization. Here's why I mean that. One of the challenges that we ran into when we first started our program was that conversation when a law enforcement officer knocks on the door of somebody who was brought back from Narcan the night before. We knock on the door, what these folks were used to hearing was put your hands behind your back, you're under arrest. Mm -hmm. And Instead we had officers from the Hope Task Force knocking on the door saying I'm here to help. Hmm. So that was really difficult connection to start to make. With Southeast on the other hand, Southeast being there with us to help start that conversation. What makes it so uh, amazing with Southeast is Southeast um, does everything. And so oftentimes the conversation starts with just general overall well-being. You know, if the person maybe has uh, issues with diabetes or whatever it is. And so allowing Southeast um, they're the experts in that field to start that, that conversation with just, with, with just being a well-being check. Hey, how about you come in? When's the last time you've seen a doctor? When's the last time you had a physical? Come on in. Start that engagement. Start to build that rapport while at the same time introducing um, treatment options. And when the person's ready to seek treatment and long-term recovery, they'll do so. And so that's why Southeast is amazing because they do it all. It's not just treatment. It's not just MAT. I mean, for those of you who don't, right. people who don't know, medically assisted treatment, they don't just do those things. They do everything. And so they're a key partner in, in, uh, in our efforts.
3: Right. And someone who suffers from substance use disorder will always know that it's there. It, there is something there for them if they need it. Right. Right. Also, I have I have one other question. Have you heard of the Angel Project that they have out here in Massachusetts?
2: Uh, yes.
3: You have with with um, Officer. I think his name was Campanelli. They,
2: they they come in and turn in drugs and paraphernalia, and they they won't. Be- yeah,
3: they can. Yeah, and they they're not. They won't let them leave until they have them. They place them into treatment. Does Ohio have anything like that?
2: Um. I- I think there are some agencies that, that subscribe to that. Ohio, we we don't necessarily have a number of laws that are in place for that, but but I will tell you what's happening here is because there's so much focus and awareness and education, um, the criminal justice system is changing. Yeah. And so I know that here locally, our local prosecutor's office, um, our local prosecutor, his name is Ron O'Brien. Ron O'Brien is not interested in prosecuting low-level drug offenses, possession, things of that nature. He too is, is most interested in getting people connected and really going after the high level drug dealers because most of these high level drug dealers are not people who are also addicted themselves or people that are capitalizing on addiction. So yeah, the focus has definitely changed. And so, yeah, we, we encounter folks with low-level amounts or uh, people that are, that are under the influence all the time. And, uh, we've, and and historically, we used to take those people to jail or we would turn them into informants or, or what have you. And so, yeah, our efforts have definitely changed and, and we're no longer focused on that. It's more about connecting people with resources and if we're able to extract information that would be useful or intelligence of of where the source of the drugs that coming in that community is, great. And if that doesn't work out, that's okay too. I'm sure you come up against a lot of fear. Yeah, there's, uh, you know, stigma still an issue out there uh, in our communities. Just, you know, just in the community itself but also people who are addicted, you know. Um, You know, they're they're, still a challenge. So there's fears that they give up their dealers, and then of course uh, the stigma of being labeled and things of that nature as well.
3: Um, maybe, are you? I'm sorry. Go ahead, Lori. I was gonna say, Annie, maybe you could uh, talk to Officer. Um, is it Minerd? Is that how you pronounce yeah. your last name? Yeah. Uh, with with Allies in Recovery and kind of show him. I mean, we're another resource. This website, yeah, right. Recovery that that kind of faces or or helps to it's for families and friends of a loved one that suffers with sud it's it is a way to kind of get beyond some of the stigma because you can do it right in your own home maybe annie can talk to you after the podcast oh yeah sure i can even
1: um dr Dominique simone levine she produces our podcast and runs the website and her work's been featured on hbo as well she specializes in the craft method i don't know if you've heard of that I have not. It's powerfully effective because the craft method is behavior modification for the family. It really helps you to put the weapons down, take care of yourself, tend to yourself, and respond completely different. And it's interesting to me how effective it is when you guys are handing resources in the midst of a crisis call, because one of the things that um, craft teaches you is that there are moments that they call wishes and dips that pass really quick, and it's where you're Um, son or daughter, loved one who's addicted might say something like, do you think I want to live this life? Do you think I'm happy like this? And it passes that quick. Or sometimes for my son, he would have those moments apart from me. So I would plant little truth bombs with him. Things like, don't you remember our vacation? Don't you want to have times like that again? And he said they would haunt him later when he would have those brief moments of, you know, lucid moments of where's my normal life. But with the craft method, when you have somebody in those moments, they don't like to do the surprise party intervention where you're deceived into a setting and everyone tells you how they're affected. An intervention involving craft is a lot softer and more effective because it would be maybe handing a note along with lunch that says, when you're ready, here's a number of a couple of treatment centers. And that's and that's actually exactly what my son did. He went from private school and football and classical piano and traveling with us to living in a dugout where he had hit home runs through Little League. And not for long, but he remembered that phone number given to him in that moment of clarity, and he made that call. So craft method is that kind of approach with a softer, non-shaming, non-combative. We're here to help, but when you're ready, you know, with wise bo- borders and boundaries, and that's extremely helpful for families because in the midst of that, families learn a new way to relate, and it's a lot calmer and more peaceful, and everyone tends to get on the same page of everyone getting healthy because I'm sure you know, walking into a setting where there's a person addicted, that's just the big piece of a baby mobile. There's all these other pieces moving with that one person, and nobody's
3: typically perfectly healthy. The whole family tends to be sick. Right, and nobody, you talked about listening, right? It's, you have to, as a parent or a loved one, you it's almost like you have to, when you're in the midst of crisis or the midst of this chaos, you have to learn how to stop and listen and listen for those dips and wishes so that you can capitalize on it and you can say something to the effect of, well, what are you willing to do to end this you know, this part of your life? What are you willing to do? Uh, you know, can I give you some numbers to some people that you can call that can help you? You know, it's that, it's kind of softer. It, it's a lot less chaotic and a lot less confrontational. Um, but the other thing about it is, is it's a, it's a website. So it's, it's, um, it's private, it's in the comfort of your own home, and you can practice it. It's little pieces at a time. It's not this sweeping change that someone might be totally opposed to doing, right, you know, immediately. I don't know. You might want to check it out. Maybe Annie can help you out with that later on.
2: My mind is wide open to any idea that, that may work to, uh, to help change this trajectory, so absolutely.
3: It's, okay. And the other thing about it is it's something you can just hand out right then and there. Hey, you might want to check out this website. That's, you know, it's that simple. Uh,
1: I actually um, was listening to a doctor. I'm a big fan of Dr. Drew, because I think he does a lot to open the public perception about addiction as a disorder and having compassion. And on one of his podcasts the other day, they were taking live questions. So I asked, have you heard of Craft Method? And he went into a detailed explanation of what it was and how it began. And he said, it's one of the most powerfully effective things because it includes, it incorporates empathy and family behavior being modified. It's not just that we have one big problem and it's this <laughs> addicted person. It's the whole unit as a whole. Wow. So, yes, moving on from that, I do have a question. Okay. We'll, we'll talk about that later <laughs> on. I can send you information on that if you'd like. And um, our listeners know allies in recovery is basically where, what we're produced from and big supporters of that. Are you, are you finding sti- even still that you're getting – much resistance from your colleagues with this work and when it comes to the attitude about those who are caught up in addiction. I know it's like cops and robbers, good guys, bad guys. Um, and it's hard not to see those who are involved in drugs. And sometimes low, lower level um, drug dealing is done by people who are addicted and just trying to support their habit. And we try to look at everyone as someone's son or daughter, you know, and I, I haven't really applied that when it comes to big dealers who are preying on people or cartel or whatever. But when it comes to those who are caught up in addiction and in the field of our community, what resistance are you getting? From colleagues, personal I mean.
2: Yeah, there's, uh, you know, there's, there's definitely some resistance out there. There's been a, yeah, there's been some, some articles published here in, uh, in, in central Ohio where some, some, of my colleagues have shared their personal stories here, and I always like to see that too. You know, them to step up and, and sort of show their, their courage as well. Um, you know, this, this epidemic, you know, as you all know, of course, is, you know, knows no boundaries or no community or no socioeconomic uh, class is immune from it. And and so, you know, addiction can creep up into any one of our households. And so, but there, you know, it, my colleagues, it's, uh cops are cynical, unfortunately. And so, yeah, there there's still a level of resistance that still exists. There, to some degree, is still, there's some, I want to say, uh, I guess I could I could characterize it as uh, compassion fatigue with, that makes the, sense. with the number of relapses and as far as uh, Narcan uses and things of that nature. You know, when you when as a, as a police officer and you respond out and you're giving people resources and administer Narcan and the next week you're back out there doing the same thing and the next week you're back out there doing the same thing it is tough to stay committed. And so, yeah, I mean, there is some resistance, but I think through awareness and some some educational, you know, opportunities out there, I think slowly the mindset among first responders and in particular law enforcement, I think it's definitely changing. Um, I argue all the time that, that, you know, working around addiction is the best form of community policing that I've seen and definitely in my career and maybe that we've ever seen ever. And the reason I say that is, we're working with colleagues from, from local, state, and federal levels. We are working on a common goal with people from you know professionals, whether you're doctors, nurses, counselors, or whatever. And we're, and we're all doing this and we're all focusing on the, the the population in our communities that's the most at risk, and that is people with addiction or or mental health issues. And so um, I argue all the time that that working on this uh, this heroin epidemic is really the greatest form of of community policing that that's probably ever come about. Definitely in my career.
1: Before we go on, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge our sponsor, Allies in Recovery. Since 2002, Allies has been helping families like yours and like mine. Cope with the substance use of a loved one. Join Allies in Recovery today and you'll have access to a wealth of information, strategies, and community to help you navigate the minefield of addiction. That's alliesinrecovery.net. Now back to the show.
3: And I, and I, think, I think what you're doing is, is awesome. And I think, I think from what I see... In my community as well, because I I know that our officers are trying really hard to make a difference when it when it comes to addiction and mental health. I think that on the whole, people are on the right track and it's going to be through people are going to um, police officers, first responders with a little bit of education and a little bit of understanding, I think they got into the job to begin with to better the community, and so I think that ultimately, I, I, I totally understand this um this concept of what do you call it compassionate fatigue? compassion fatigue yeah I I can I can certainly understand something like that you know I mean they see some tough stuff have I don't know if you've ever seen have you ever seen the um there is a movie out it's called what is it called it's called this is my house have you ever heard of this well it's it's actually it's a documentary and it's all about the draw the war on drugs and they interview these two police officers in providence and actually the documentary covers i want to say something like 15 years and they go back 15 years later and they interview these same police officers from Providence. And in the beginning these two police officers they were young, they were fresh, they were tough and they were going to, you know, clean up the streets and put all these people in in jail and they were going to they were really going to make a difference. And then it then it cuts to like 15 years later and they're older, they're wiser and they're trying to you can see that they're trying to come to terms with the arresting didn't make that much of a difference. They know everybody that's on the streets and they're trying really hard to find a solution. You can see them talking in this conversation and they, they don't know what the answers are. And to me, that was like a, you should watch it because, because that was like what you were talking about. It's this compassion fatigue, although they still continue to have compassion and caring for these people. And, I have a funny feeling that's that's what a lot of police officers are going through right now today.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely.
3: Yeah, I was going to
1: add that we, we do feel change is slowly happening. And I think it's due to how overwhelming the epidemic is. And it is pervasive in every community and family type. And, um, you know, I've shared my story that my mother has had an opiate addiction for over 30 years and it's robbed her of her entire life. It's, an, it's a life unrealized. And she's a little church lady you would never look at her and guess that i mean she doesn't even swear she doesn't believe in divorce or people drinking and but she is has a purse full of opiates at all times and bought into this old school belief that pain was the sixth sense and the doctors would just prescribe it to her and that opiates were a long-term answer to pain and now we know opiates help pain for about six weeks and after that they make it worse and that if she started to get off this, her pain would go away. But it's, it's, she is a perfect example. And there was even a story in the news today about a, a local football coach that took time off work for his health and ended up overdosing on fentanyl. He didn't really have a – I mean, he had a health issue, but what he didn't say was that it was addiction. And it was ending his career as a football coach. That's been all over the news it's pervasive in every demographic. And because of that, I think that's why we're starting to slowly see change and to people like you who are standing bravely in the face of shame, resistance, and stigma to speak out. So I would ask as well, are you seeing much change and
2: hope? Um, Yeah, I think we are seeing some change. And, uh, I think from a personal standpoint, I'm, 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 I'm hopeful for the future. Um, you know, I think you look across the landscape here, there's uh, an enormous you know, level of, of, of conflict um, that exists in our life. And, and look no further than you know, the political landscape and international conflict and all of that. Um, you know, but the one thing that can unite us all um, is working together on uh, what I call is, is a community problem. And so it requires a community solution, sort of a all hands on deck approach. And so I think more and more, uh, I think that table um, is getting larger instead of agencies and different uh, governmental entities sort of being territorial, um, they're, they're welcoming others to the table, setting a place for folks that maybe came to the table a little bit late, but we're all getting there one way or another and we're all working collectively for a solution. You know, the, the, this epidemic, you know, challenges all in our homes and whether it's, you know, our family or our kids workplace, you know, we have a declining workforce. We have an impact on business, you know, crime rates are, are up, you know, local, state, federal and uh, budget budgets are through the roof. And even our neighboring countries, as I mentioned in Mexico and places like that are seeing the violence and issues with uh, immigration and people trying to get away from that way of life um, to come here to the United States. But, you know, the, the, the opiate epidemic is one way that we can all come together as a community and hopefully find a solution as we move forward.
1: I absolutely agree. that's beautiful. I don't know if you're going to be at the rally for recovery at the state house on Friday, this Brenda Stewart's who has the addicts parents united. They're receiving a, an award that day. And there are some speakers coming.
2: I, I, I cannot attend. And uh, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm leaving town to go visit my adult daughter and, this has nothing to do with with uh, our topic today, but uh, my, my adult daughter is uh, is battling cancer, and so oh
1: my goodness.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm. He lives in uh, Seattle, and so I'm I'm going out there later this week to to visit and spend some time with her. And I've been out there a few times, but uh, anyway, that's otherwise I would be there. I I, I love the Stewarts. Brenda is an amazing woman. I joke with her all the time. time every time I go somewhere. I run into her and I always joke with her and say, I don't know if you're stalking me or if I'm stalking you, but uh, we're always in (laughs) place at the same time so.
1: right well she is yeah she is a definitely a big presence in the community and yeah. it's a much deserved award um and very sorry to hear about your daughter we wish her much strength and fighting spirit and then i want to ask what are your future plans and how can our listeners get in touch with you or hope task force particularly the, those in ohio or maybe some listeners that would like to start something similar in their law enforcement communities
2: yeah, I mean, right now, so, you know, we're very proud, proud of uh, um, our HOPE program because it combines law enforcement and prevention and then education. Education, I argue, is, is a key component And why there's a lot of emphasis right now on treatment and recovery and all that. We can't we can't uh, ignore um, prevention and, and trying to save young people. So, you know, I, I heard this, uh, this analogy the other day, but I like it. I mean, there's enough people in the ditches that are struggling from addiction, we've got to secure the guardrails up on the top of the roadway here to prevent more of our young people from going going over. And so um, we're working real hard to do that. We have some programming that we also do here at the Sheriff's Office with uh, not only uh, educating young people, kids with our Operation Street Smart program, but we have an adult version of Operation Street Smart where we go out in the community and we educate adults. Anybody who has a nexus to children about um, not only the dangers of drugs but terminology concealment uh, as you two ladies uh, probably know you normally aren't going to find. The substance under your 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 son or daughter's pillow. What you're going to find is those innocuous signs that you didn't that you didn't see coming, and things that you may have overlooked. And so, what we do is we try to educate teachers, doctors, nurses, parents. I don't, it doesn't matter what profession you come from, or you're a stay home mom. You know, we want to educate you on the terminology and concealment in the way that. Uh, People are abusing substances. So that's one of the programs that we continue to uh, foster. And we got a lot of great partnerships there, but uh, we're looking to expand the HOPE model. And so here, in central Ohio, there are 28 police agencies here, and we've got, including ourselves, we have about 11 of them on board who are either a partner to the HOPE Task Force, or at the very least, they have adopted our protocols, and they too are, are doing sort of the HOPE model in terms of outreach and things of that nature uh, in their community. So we're looking to expand that, and uh, yeah, and you can always reach me by email. So my email is rd. M I N E R D, so R D Minored, at Franklin County, Ohio, all spelled out, dot gov. And then you can reach me in the office at area code 614 525 3308. And then, of course, I'm on Facebook and LinkedIn and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Rick Minard, most of my accounts are under Rick Minard Jr., but uh, you can find me there as well. Well,
1: I am so thankful for you to come on today. Everything you've said has been informative, encouraging. Um, I've learned new stuff. I le- we learn something from our listeners every time. And I have to say, this was one of the powerful
3: ones. Lori, do you have anything else? Yeah, I just want to thank you for coming on the podcast and, and contributing. And thank you so much for everything that you're doing.
2: Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to, to come on. Thank you, uh, and then Lori. Yeah, if there's anything I can do to help, please come ring.
1: Yes, yeah, so I wanted to also thank you, um, For standing with those that feel demonized, um, being from a voice of authority and from those who they normally feel are against them or maybe above them, for you to stand with the demonized and present the truth and present compassion. And thank you for your work. I, I know, I, I guess we don't put much thought into how stressful it must, must be to have to figure out the confusion and the, how things are covert and hidden and dangerous and threatening on a daily basis to come against this epidemic. So in all parts, I want to say thank you. And we hope maybe you'll come back again. And I hope to see you in the community soon. We will be in touch. Let me know how we can help.
0: Great. Thank you for having me.
1: Thank Thanks you so much. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening to this Coming Up for Air podcast with Annie Highwater and Lori McDougall. If you're interested in reading Annie's book, Unhooked, A Mother's Story of Unhitching from the Roller Coaster of Her Son's Addiction, it's available online. Or you can simply follow the link at the bottom of one of Annie's blog posts on alliesinrecovery.net. Coming Up for Air is sponsored by Allies in Recovery, the online home for families facing the addiction of a loved one. Allies in Recovery can help you understand your loved one's struggle and offers effective communication strategies that encourage treatment and discourage use. In addition to interactive e-learning, Allies in Recovery offers expert advice, podcasts, tools for evaluating treatment options, recent news items, and access to a large community of families coping with issues similar to yours. Join alliesinrecovery.net today. That's alliesinrecovery, all one word, dot net. Thank you for listening. Our theme music was performed and composed by cellist Eric Corey.